This is Mental Maps, a podcast about navigating the mind. My name is Dr. Josh Waddell. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner, mental health counselor, and host of this show. The content of this show is focused on creating a better understanding about the mind and how you can achieve optimal well-being. Uh, before we jump into the show, I wanted to give you guys a quick update on a really cool collaboration we have going right now. If you've been following the show for a while, you know how important it is for your gut health to be at optimal functioning. And one of the ways to do that is through things like probiotics and prebiotics. And if you've listened to the show, you also know how challenging it can be to find good supplementation for that. And so it's one of the reasons that Mental Maps has decided to collaborate with Just Thrive Health. This is a really great company who focuses on making spore-based probiotics. Uh, if you're new to that, you can go back to some of the other episodes, primarily with like Dr. Krishnan, who discusses how important that version of a probiotic and prebiotic are. And so one of the things that we've done with Just Thrive is to give people an opportunity to try these supplements. You can use the discount code MAPS. It's capital M, capital A, capital P, capital S. We'll also put that on our Instagram and in the show notes. And you can use that to get 15% off of any of your purchases. So go ahead, try that out at Just Thrive. I use it. I've really been impressed with the effects it's had not only on my overall gut health but mental health. And so I would recommend you guys check that place out. So it's JustThriveHealth.com. Welcome back to Mental Maps. As always, I hope this finds you well, no matter what season of life you're in. Currently, I am traveling through Finland. I've had the amazing opportunity to, to be here and work through this area. Uh, right now, I'm looking out this window in this beautiful, snowy landscape. It's kind of a cross between a Hallmark movie and another planet. And so it's just a really cool experience. And with me today is Dr. Odi Lunagranda. I believe I said that correct, um, the Chief Minister of Mental Health in Finland, as well as does so many other things. And we're going to unpack that a little bit and just talking about what is mental health like in Finland. Dr. Odi, thank you so much for being here with us. Nice to meet you. So I think we'll just kind of jump into it for like the third year in a row. I believe Finland was rated the happiest country in the world uh, by different um, news outlets and things like that. What is the reason for that, in your opinion? Well, if I ask my friends, nobody admits they are happy. So, <laughs> so, so we always joke, maybe people just respond like that, to be correct. But uh, a more serious response, I, I've lived in, in Germany, London, uh, Canada, and Montreal for years in total. And um, my response as a Finn who has seen other countries, I've traveled a lot. What I see is different in Finland. I think this is about the society and the nature. And and so it's, it's safety. It's it's like um, overall, it's it's quiet. It's it's the nature is close to people. We still have the habit to go to the forest. We know how uh, how how people survived here when it's dark, when it's cold. Despite that. We do enjoy that, <laughs> the, the, even the winter time. Um, it's also about independence. It might be hard to describe, but maybe not that hard now that Russia has attacked uh, Ukraine. So, so it's an individual thing. We, as individuals, uh, especially women, they, they like to be really independent. And as, as a country, we are always really proud about being independent in, in several aspects um, and that has to has to do with uh, mental health as well I think because we we kind of um, we have this what we call sisu so uh, the strength to survive despite uh, hard times at least we say so but there's some evidence to that I would say <laughs> yes I and, so. yeah yeah but but I mean th there's so much one thing I realized, especially in, in being abroad, is education. So, so when we when Finland became independent, women had the right to vote from the beginning. And I can see that the school, the education, the university, universities are free. So we have a really long time good education. So we, we also know lots of, about health and mental health. As such, but I, I mean, we have good reasons for being happy, and and um, yeah, 
Absolutely. I, I heard so much in that. I think we'll kind of go with the first thing was you talked about just the closest with nature. And that's one thing I've noticed too, is every landscape, even when you're in the city, this is so beautiful and there's so many different places you can go and things to do. So you feel like in all your travels, that's really a core component of what generates that quote unquote happiness that exists here. I'm sure. So that's actually, I realized that in Canada, I worked closely with Inuit and uh, we immediately had a connection with them because they, they, when, when you ask about mental health, they first start from the connection to land and, and country. And for me, it was like, yeah, I always felt that like the trees, the importance of trees and the strength you get when you walk outside. And that I was completely missing in London and, and Montreal. And it takes me a few days. It's, it's the noise. It's, it's just uh, the, too much of everything, I would say, mm -hmm. for my mental health. Mm -hmm. I still live in, in Espo, but I have a forest starting from the door. So. Absolutely. And it, it's almost overstimulating, whereas you're, if you're in these places of very calmness and a peaceful, your brain almost is able to navigate the world in an easier manner. And so that allows for maybe better emotions to occur or even just happier emotions to occur. So nature, and then you, you referenced earlier too, and I think that's what makes Finland very interesting, is when you look at it, there should be reasons people be unhappy. There's times of complete darkness. There's days where it's so cold. I mean, I have not had a day above freezing since I've got here, I don't believe. And so when we look at it from like Western culture, we really always just talk about vitamin D and sunlight and warmth and, you know, those kind of things. But here you guys found a, a version of happiness that seems to be more consistent despite these challenges. What do you think the reason is for that? To be honest, I have to also mention that we have the highest suicide rate in the world um, earlier, not anymore. Now we are in the middle range. Um, so we do have some genetic background. It, it, it used to be a really isolated country. So a part of the population commits suicides, um, violent suicides, and, and they feel bad. And I think that might come from the like you feel you, you have every reason to be happy and yet you are not. Mm. And, you know, everybody has their individual reasons for not mm -hmm. actually feeling as happy as the others mm -hmm. surrounding them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we, we do have a really strict healthcare system. Vitamin D, everybody learns about that at schools, daycare even, you know, so, so we, we do everything to protect from the lack of sun, let's say. And yeah, but um what are some of the things that you got, if you found to be the most helpful in protecting from the lack of sun? Well, vitamin D, we need to use more than the other okay. populations. Like supplementation with different vitamins or foods and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and one way to recognize that is now that we have more and more people coming uh, with different color of skin, we, we have realized that we need, really need to stress them to use the vitamin because we are so used to use, uh, use it. As doctors, we don't even remember to mention that give babies vitamin D. So mm. uh, there was a recent study mentioning that um, babies who have a like really dark skin color, they, they have 70 times higher prevalence of autism in Finland. So now we are stressing everywhere that yeah, really? remember to mention the vitamin D is that the level that the need is higher in Finland. Absolutely. What do you think the correlation is with that? Just the vitamin D makes it more prone for those genetic markers to, to be triggered? Or do you feel like it's more of just a brain development standpoint? Oh, well, that's not my expertise, but you know, it's okay. what I remember from medical studies is no matter what you learn about health, vitamin D is somehow important. So it's Absolutely. an essential vitamin in every aspect. You mentioned earlier, you know, the suicide rate and how at one time you guys were leading and then there's been this shift to now be in the middle of the pack. What do you think was the reason for that shift to, to bring down that suicide rate? I know mental illness is still very prevalent in Finland and we'll, we'll kind of talk about that in a second, but there has been a shift. And what mm -hmm. do you feel like has been the reason for that? we will never be able to tell because they did everything possible. So they, they worked on the societal level. They, they looked at the healthcare system. They, they trained doctors, nurses to recognize suicide risk. We do have uh, interventions to, at, at the individual level, family level, 
to meet people who, who um, uh, are suicidal um, and families of people who committed suicide. You know, we, we have um, programs for traffic bridges. Uh, when we built them, we recognized the risk for suicide. So we did everything that's possible. I think where we could work more is guns. People mm. like to hunt, and and it's a sensitive issue. Mm -hmm. The the harder it is to get guns, the the less suicides you have, and you have certainly proved that in America as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we see that a lot in our culture. You know, I primarily work in in the southern part of the United States, where guns are a very hot topic. You know, and and everybody grows up around guns; are always there, but you know, life is really made up of those one second decisions. And unfortunately for a lot of people who are mentally unwell, you know, that one second decision isn't, you know, come back from it. And it's really unfortunate. And so, so how can you make those safeguards where you can still hunt and do those things and, and go and create that, but still be safe. And yeah, there's a lot of safeguards you talked about from a societal level. And that was one of the things um, th that I think is very interesting. What did you see done from a societal standpoint? I know healthcare is much more accessible. Um, it seems like housing is more accessible here. Did you feel like that's kind of what that's related to? Yeah, it's it's about po uh, preventing poverty. So it's the whole welfare um, system we have here in Finland, in Scandinavia, that's important. Um, it's it's uh, it starts teaching kids how to maintain, maintain their mental health. So mm. the teachers need the knowledge to teach the kids. It's, it's about working as a group. The schools have annual programs for mental health. So they have certain themes, emotion regulation, uh, social skills per month. And then it's, it's small games, you know, and stories and things like that, but it's an annual and, and continuous progress. So, so that's, that's one thing. I mean, there's so much you can do, and and it's uh, currently we are speaking about um, recognizing mental health impact while you make decisions, no matter what decisions, and especially for kids, that's essential for adults to recognize. Um, and then also evaluating the impact on mental health afterwards. Let's say we have this pandemic, we did make decisions that were not wise. Now that we know. Or everything we know. We didn't know that in the beginning, but there were times where we should have changed. Let's say closing the schools. Um, Finland was not among the worst, but still we, we, we kept them closed too long. We didn't remember to protect those who are the most vulnerable. So that's like there are families that are not, not safe for kids. We simply didn't um, take that seriously. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, the whole society needs to recognize the importance of mental health. Yeah, so I feel like you know what you're saying from a cultural perspective, it, it's something of the utmost importance, and everybody recognizes it. You re referenced the pandemic; that was something I was I was going to ask. So you found also that coming out of some of those uh, regulations, and, and we've seen this in America as well, that it's it appeared that some of the things impacted them in a negative manner like shutting down the schools for too long and that kind of thing. What did you find? Was it more of a mood issue of anxiety and sadness? Was it more behavioral? So like now kids are very angry and agitated and so being disruptive. What was seen the most here? Well, um, how I see and, and the Finnish mental health strategy is, is seeing mental health. We have two dimensions. We have the symptoms, but what was essential very much in the beginning of the pandemic was this dimension of positive mental health, so mental well-being. And there was a really rapid decrease in mental well-being, which was not surprising. People couldn't meet their loved ones. They were really worried. Um, people even died, but they were mostly worried about that. Um, they, they couldn't help old people. People were isolated. Um, kids couldn't play go outside. So we had so many restrictions that had a strong impact on mental well-being. Those factors that protect us or give relief from stress. And that, that's the first thing we were able to measure. I think that's not only in Finland, it's, it's a global issue. And after that, people started to say they, are, they feel anxious, uh, depressed enormous numbers of, of, of reports and, and severe anxiety, depression, 
what I, I can see now in the reports when people when we have studies asking the, the young people what was the worst, they 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 list the, the limited social contact like they, they and I, I would say it somehow they had an experience like young adults especially they had a limited um, inclusion mm -hmm. in the society they were not heard they were even blamed at least in Finland they were blamed like you only you still party and the students wanted to party they met others and and they didn't get the infections but there was a big news about that and, and you know so now that that's the most important currently promising the young people they will be heard they can participate in the society they they can get a job they they are supported after limited um studies and so on that that is so profound you know, and i think we've seen that also in america you know you reference it globally you know from the perspective of you had the lockdowns, the kids to go, we have virtual schooling. And so now they're very disconnected. And even with the virtual platforms, they're still very disconnected. And then when they returned, we've seen a lot of like depression in that moment. So those depressive symptoms, you know, we've seen a lot of people go to hospital and some of those things just because they're so unwell. And then coming out of that, you've seen a lot of symptomology with anxiety, just really struggling to interact with other people. It's almost like, as the brain began to prune off some of those neural connections that it wasn't using at the time, restarting that was very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah. And so then you see a lot more, we've seen a lot of people isolate even more coming out of this because mm -hmm. now they just got so used to being so isolated. Yeah. Yeah. I know several uh, like older people who, who are completely fit and healthy and they, they protected themselves so strongly that even like uh, in December, when I spoke with them, they hadn't gone anywhere, basically. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it will have an, a physical impact as well. But then speaking with others, I remember the first parties I had with friends and I was like, so how did you actually chat with people? <laughs> it's, it's amazing how quickly you forget and, and, and you feel so uncomfortable so you do and, and yeah I, I can relate like we were doing work kind of virtually th so kind of through this platform we were seeing patients in this way and so then when we went back to the office it was just kind of different you know you're sitting across from someone in a physical interaction yeah. and it's like i've been doing this for a long time seeing and, and meeting people so it was a, a huge shift um so you really seen that you know for you guys as well that after the pandemic there were these challenges that were really met from a societal standpoint, what have you seen now that has improved that, or has there been things that's improved that coming out of the lockdowns? Yeah, we, in Finland, we happened to have one Russia attack, Ukraine, just when we were about to, to you know, open up, and that wasn't too good either. And before the pandemic, we did have the climate change. So young mm -hmm. people are really anxious about that. I think like at my age as well, we're mm -hmm. really <laughs> worried about, and it's it's a true, like we need to be worried about climate change. Mm -hmm. But uh, well, what's critical now is the, the chronic crisis after crisis. So how do you then create hope? And, and how do you then feel it's, it's worth it to go mm -hmm. further? And, and yeah, not just waiting for the next, Mm. big thing to happen what have you yeah. found to help that you know with the people you see or the people your colleagues are seeing to kind of generate that hope i mean you're right beside a, a country that's involved in so much turmoil and there's a lot of things going on and there's conflict and climate change and societal things how do you find to generate that hope for people yeah uh, it, it's even a personal issue for me because on mm. a weekly basis somebody's asking me i'm like journalists and and so on um what what should bring hope and i i my response is other people somebody i, I just read somebody say that yes um, my first response to the crisis is to learn to better learn to know my neighbors and i think that's the a wise thought so so that's our comfort learning to know other people making contact not staying alone speaking with others chatting no matter what and um that, that like this everyday contact with other people that's my first thing and of course they're the nature and and, and 
I mean, that's such a great point because, I mean, we see that in a lot of the, you know, the happiness-based research that of the places and the people who generate the most happiness or say they're happy, it's really based around community, that a lot of these people have these communities around them. They feel purposeful in their community. They feel like they have an impact in their community. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what you're seeing, too, is that when these kids, teenagers, young adults, they feel like they have a purpose. They feel like they're heard. They feel like they can get a job. They have this education. They feel engaged in society. And then if they have this communication with people, now they're building relationships and that gives them hope despite all mm -hmm. the chaos. Yeah, I think so. Uh, we have increasing numbers of, of uh, young people who feel anxious and, and depressed. And I think that that comes back to the, where we started from. So as a as, um, community, I think we are getting more individual based and, and um, it's, it's not good. We, we should like we, we, we feel it makes us feel good when we help others and when we also take care of others. And um, somehow the, the younger generations, they, they, they have become more individual based. And it, you can see that when, when people speak about loss, so how to help people who feel more anxious after the pandemic, it's about, yeah, we need more psychotherapy. And I don't agree. I, I would say <laughs> then you sit alone and speak to a therapist and it's no interaction. You, you should have hobbies and you should go out and, and just uh, learn to know more people. And that's that's the first thing. Of course, there are people who need psychotherapy. No question about that. But it's it's just sure. interesting when, how people always start from individual psychotherapy when they find mm. solutions. That's such a great point, you know, and it is very individualized and you see that a lot that, and, you know, we see this in America too. And I think we see it all over the world where when something's not right, you initially just go straight to treatment rather than working into like your community, you know, and we see this a lot right now within medication. And so we have a lot of challenges in America where a lot of people are seeking medicine that can maybe be treated in other forms or fashions, you know, through group therapy or just through living life in a different way, connecting with nature, that kind of stuff. Do you see that as well here where, where pharmacology is used a lot or is it more psychotherapy based for people who are unwell? Well, if we look like in Finland, we have exact numbers about people using medication and having psychotherapy. So I can tell you reliably that, um, that the numbers go up mm -hmm. so, and it's, it's, it's like 45% uh, increase over years. Um, and also we do have evidence that it's not about the actual need so much, but people seek more uh, treatments. And it's really interesting. In a way, I, I tend to think we should respond to that. But then also, it, like when I was younger, everybody was conscious about medicalization and against med medicine. So it's really interesting how this is now, it, it has almost disappeared. There's hardly any stigma about uh, using medication or, or going to psychotherapy, which is good. But the, then the cost is that. Um, I don't think we will have that many psychotherapists that everybody can go to psychotherapy, at least if it takes a few years. So as you've seen this shift, there's this increase of people seeking care. Maybe they need the care. Maybe they could find other ways to manage it, but that's becoming kind of a challenge for you all as well. And I think we've seen that in America and other places too. You mentioned earlier the, the individualization, and I think one thing that's really interesting about the, the Finnish culture as, as a whole is that, and I, and I may say this wrong, but it's the concept of that you're kind of to yourself in that you're not going to have a whole lot of small talk, you're not going to do those things yet, but you're, in, in, you're involved in your community. And so you're not going to compare yourself to the other person. I've heard other people tell me that on this journey is that they don't spend themselves, spend their time comparing themselves to other people. They care about what you're doing, but it's not something to where like they're putting their self-worth in something that you're doing. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you're describing what, what we think social media has increased okay. people, people somehow it's, it's, the social media sees people as individuals and then you start to compare you as an individual and, and so on. Um, it might be a matter of, of uh, too much seeing the social media, but. How do you feel like social media has impacted the, the Finnish culture as a whole? Um, not, I'm sure with the teenagers, but just as a whole. Um, 
most of my friends don't even use social media. They hate it. Okay. <laughs> but, but the young people are, are certainly addicted. Um, yeah. How it will impact it uh, as a society? I, well, I, I worked... I work in an institution for the government and in my my perspective the impact on politics is enormous mm. it, it it has become it, it's just amazing how a person who wants to change the society as a politician how they are treated it has changed a lot and they, they don't have any privacy it's it's really harsh you make one error and you're out so I think it's getting harder and harder to find people who are actually really good as politicians and, and want to do it continuously. And, and you need this continuity and sustainability in politics to change something in a democracy. Mm-hmm. So that's one big impact I can see. Absolutely. Um, you see not only from just teenagers being kind of addicted to it and they're using it a lot, but you're seeing it from a societal level as well, where people are being attacked on there it may deter people from from seeking out public positions where they're able to make create and change from fears mm-hmm. of what could happen to them over the social media websites yeah at some point several politicians say this is too much for my family it's not fair for mm-hmm. my family my my loved ones and i i'll do something else um and why i mentioned that is as an example you need policy and, and funding and resources, public resources for mental health services. Mm-hmm. And and it's it has also become like, yes, we have this digital digital psychiatry and online psychotherapy and we can treat everybody. And then that's an easy thought and easy to sell the, the people in media. I mean, social media has an impact on media as well. It, it mm-hmm. has changed that. Um, time timeline and, and and so on, and then you you can forget this that we, the hospitals need resources. We have people who have a psychiatric illness, and and so on. So it's it's so narrow perspective to mental health we we can see in the media currently. Oh, I can see that. So you know what we call telepsychiatry or virtual psychiatry that has became something that you guys are also doing and, and kind of putting as part of your treatment regimen as well. Well. We just finished a review on, on what's available in Finland, and I can tell you that it's it's amazingly little. So we, I know that in America there are like ten thousand apps for mental health, and and in Canada that was actually my my topic. I I have um, trials for mobile phones and and virtual reality. Mm-hmm. We hardly do that currently in Finland. It's mostly about asking symptoms online and then telling you would benefit from online psychotherapy or, you know, mm-hmm. it's a really narrow perspective to mm-hmm. treatment. It's certainly yep. going to happen in Finland anytime soon, this digital psychiatry. Absolutely. Referencing your work that you've done in Canada. So what was that lot? What was that about, you know, with the virtual world? I read some of that work, but what was that about for our listeners? Okay, so so I I wanted to work with um, indigenous, knowing the high suicide rate, and and I also found that really interesting because of my personal contact with this, uh, you know, the, the the background coming from abroad, and and I, I absolutely wanted to do something, and they told that they are interested in using technology. So they said they are they are so fed up with white men coming from south and flying there for a few hours and and then going away and next time it's another doctor. So mm-hmm. they said that the I mean they means here people coming from Nunavik in um, in Quebec. Mm-hmm. They said that the, why don't you tell us more about the technological possibilities? And I I told about mobile apps. I told about different options and they love this idea of virtual reality. So we built, um, um, it, it started from a valid trauma um, treatment, cognitive behavior psychotherapy. And then we we forgot this, like they, they didn't like this trauma approach. They said we all share trauma as a population mm-hmm. and, and, and we made it culturally safe. And, and it, the idea is that they can use this virtual reality environment for exposure 
and train with the psychotherapist to control their emotions. Mm. So you found that as you as you guys got into that group and began to do the work, we, you thought trauma was going to be the biggest thing. And for them, they're like, ah, we don't really want to do this kind of work. We all share this trauma. That's not a big thing. And it became more about emotion regulation and managing emotion. Yes, and empowerment. Empowerment. Okay. And yes. did you see that that, you know, for a culture that has been, tra- so what we would consider traumatized, they have generational traumas where, where people have just been marginalized and all the issues that have occurred for that tribe. Did you see that be very helpful to kind of take the the focus off trauma and move it to empowerment and emotion regulation? I think that, I think there's more wisdom to, in their thoughts than just their culture. It, we all should learn from this idea of empowerment and and strengthening the connection to nature and and community, other people, and of course ourselves. But somehow connecting to others. That they, as an example, they they have chosen a circle of people um in one exercise um but but rather than like calculating the symptoms and and following up whether we have a decrease in the symptoms they were not interested in that they they hate symptoms and numbers Mm. for emotions Mm -hmm. that's what they told me but but um they felt that in the long run what matters is is how how you can manage and how how, you, how well connected you are to yourself, to your community and to the nature. And mm-hmm. I think that's a global thing currently. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, do you think that that's something that we all could benefit from is, you know, moving away from some of the symptomology mindset and moving into more of an empowerment connectivity kind of mindset and not only treatment, but just how we live our lives as a whole? Yeah, I'm sure about that. Sure about that, yeah. I think that that is a really cool system, you know, that it it does create empowerment. And it goes back to what you said earlier, you know, when it comes to like the teenagers in Finland, them being heard is so important. There's empowerment in that. And so I think that's something that I took from this conversation as far as empowerment is so important and cultures who lean into empowerment find themselves maybe feeling happier and more involved and more included, whereas places where there's more marginalization, there's more poverty, there's more of those lower tier oppression if you will it can be very difficult to find that contentment but you need a certain security and safety Mm. for that for sure and would you consider that mental and physical safety yeah sure absolutely so not only just from like safety or around you and the people around you, but then also knowing that maybe sharing in your community isn't going to be harmful to you you know people aren't going to use it against you that kind of thing Mm, yeah, I, I, I'm so sad about thinking uh, the U.S. You know, the kids who go to school every day, scared that something could happen. It's mm. it's not the the, the safe uh, place to grow for a mm. child. And if if you're learned uh, learning that at any point somebody could shoot you or and, and, and on the street or wherever, how could that be a good thing? For your mental health or goes back run. to those basic you know stage you know those basic needs that you know eric erickson talked about you know in his stages of development you know where you know you're kind of or not eric erickson talking about maslow's hierarchy of needs and so where he talked about that basic survival need has got to be met before you can do these other things and as you're referencing for a lot of people those basic survival needs aren't met and so then they find themselves in this lack of empowerment, they don't know what's going to happen, which generates what we consider these mood concepts of anxiety, sadness, that kind of thing. Mm. I can see that. When it comes to looking at it globally, you know, especially in your place of office, what do you see being the biggest challenges right now on mental health? Well, that's a good, a big question. <laughs> right. Um, I will start from the, somehow the first thing that comes to my mind currently is, is climate change. Every action against climate change is, is um, an action towards mental health and mental well-being. And what I mean is, is yeah, people do feel anxious, at least in Finland, for a good reason. But if, if we look at what's going to happen in 10 years, unless we do something for climate change, um, the world is becoming more and more restless. There, there are going to be 
more wars, uh, more violence. We have all, always more and more kids who have uh, a severe trauma because of, um, you know, some big issues because of the climate change and uh, who have lost their homes. People who have, have moved continuously over years, seeking their place. Um, we will have lack of food. So, I mean, it's a severe danger towards safety in the world. What do you That's see mean, one. like the environmental impact of climate change in Finland? Is it, is it been more of just an impact on food resources? Is it an impact on ways to generate money? Maybe it's not as cold as it was once it was. And so the season doesn't last long. What does that look like for you guys? Um, so in Finland, I, I, I'm sure we are not in the, the worst place uh, in terms of, of being prepared for the climate change. But we are among the populations where the climate change will be among the biggest Mm -hmm. um but we don't uh, we can't like i i've seen people predict it's going to be colder and and then warmer so we don't know because um we are so dependent on on the um you know the we are pretty up north and mm -hmm. and it's it, we, it never happened that we lost this ice mm -hmm. ice smelting uh, mm -hmm how much will it happen what's going to happen when it's all gone or if it's all gone you can't predict that but but for sure we are going to have a big change the the no matter what happens i think economically the biggest thing will be for the forests so mm -hmm. the forest we do have is is that kind of forest that it's really sensitive for either cold or warmer with mm. so we are and that that's our where, where the money comes from in Finland yeah the forest. so you so you feel like you know just the way these forests are and how because they are very isolated and they're so beautiful and they're so thick that's one thing I've noticed especially being in Rovaniemi you know being going out and just there's just so many trees but you feel like they have a they have found a way to live in these climates where there is a shift in temperature but if it goes too much one way or the other way it's going to be very difficult for them to, to keep growing and generate money for the for society mm. yeah i think that has been seen in canada already that, that those infections and then yeah you know we've seen that in america as well you know like um i know that there's a place in tennessee where i'm from where there's like a beetle that had made its way into the area and just completely decimated um, yeah. these areas which impacted tourism and impacted shade and impacted you know growth and, and uh, you know what we consider our fields and all those different things so you feel mm -hmm. like climate change is probably the biggest worry in generating a lot of that that anxiousness that unknowing um, anything else you feel like is very impactful globally in the world of mental health well, of course, there's always this global and national and individual level risks, um, but but that's that's increasingly um, has to be recognized the climate change. But then, of course, there wars. Um, like now, we we do have uh, fifty thousand people from Ukraine in Finland um, mm. to help with severe trauma. So this kind of uh, individual cases. Um, I think that, that to respond to that uh, chronic uh, stress, chronic crisis situations, uh, we really need to find ways globally to build this mental well-being, mm. the skills, the knowledge to maintain it, to to for resilience as well, and as as societies and as communities as well to take care of every individual in crisis after crisis. Um, between the crisis <laughs> to mm. some, somehow uh, for resilience and, and mental well-being, that that's for sure the the uh, like systemic uh, mm -hmm. challenge we have. Yeah, and what I hear in that too is being able to not only intervene when needed, but there's these protective factors that you can do to help people manage these chronic stresses in the times where it's not so heightened, um, mm -hmm. and being able it goes it goes back to that community that you talked about before of just people being heard and people being surrounded by people who are going to listen to them and lift them up in those times. You mentioned a, a lot of like the individual concepts, you mentioned genetics. Do you see that be a huge factor in, in the people that you're working with here? And then also in Canada where genes seem to be related to the mental health a, a lot more 
and maybe once we want to start. Well, that's my one of my favorite examples. Inuit didn't have any suicides um, mm. in the 19th century. So that there's data that they, they didn't commit suicide. And now they have a really high suicide risk. Mm. So it can't be genetic. No, just mm. don't change that fast. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's it's completely societal and, and and what do you think the reason for that is? Like why what would be the reason that a, a tribe would then begin to select that is the way that they show that they're unwell? Or were they not unwell before now they are unwell? Oh it's it's us Europeans that went there and <laughs> and um, yeah and I'm I'm laughing but it's it's um we we do have recognized what we what what happened to Jewish people and but it's it, and it was repeated but they had the time to recover but what happened with indigenous was um, that they were transported from, to schools where they were basically killed and and used as uh, as um, examples for medical tests and mm. and and they were punished in really brutal ways generation after generation and they lost their contact with the culture and family they were even not told who who was their family and so, so when that happened uh, for uh, 150 years um you th th these people don't even know sometimes how, how to be with kids or what's healthy family like they, they it, it it has lost like and and it's not their fault it, it's 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 the society and it's it's really brutal. Of course, the idea was that they they take these kids and then they are trained to be um, proper citizens, but but like you don't do that like that. So they were traumatized so severely, and and it's still not recognized in Canada. You, you know, I I think that we have that in America as well with you know the American Indian and, and their push into you know the western part of the, the country how they lost all their land they're kind of given this one little part during that time they were taken from their families put in schools to be like americanized and there's just a lot of things that happen but then it's not recognized there either and we know there is a profound amount of trauma that stay on what, what's considered those reservations and those tribes which are, are really sad i know i've got some colleagues that do work in those areas and it's just it's so profound you, you mentioned that that the the European impact on that. And I think we're seeing this in other places, you know, there's a lot of different research where, you know, we in Western culture, European culture will go into an area. We think that we know what they need to do. We then give them this knowledge and then leave. And so then we either find themselves showing different ways to be unwell. Like how can we fix that, you know, working with that tribe to not be that kind of helper in this world? Well, it's about independence and, and, the, the the rights for housing and rights for healthy food, which mm. are really limited, in, especially in northern Canada. Um, I can't speak for all America, but that's where I, I learned to know people. Um, but it, it's something we know we should do. That that's the basis, like the basic things in life first, and then you can have mental health. Mm. And so you're saying that you, you've got to prioritize those things. You've got to prioritize the, the how everybody has housing, everybody has food. And if you can do that, then that mental well-being will be generated. Well, you can't generate mental health with psychotherapy unless those, uh, those exist, right? And, I, you know, we see that e even in America, you know, as I referenced earlier, we're, I work in a very rural part of the South um, in, in Florida, actually. And, and we see where there's a lot of people who don't have access to food there. Uh, they're very, very rural. They're very, very far away. There's not public transportation there. And so when that, and then you see, you know, what we, we've seen in our country, the economy is kind of impacted. It's very, very expensive to live. It's very hard to buy housing. And so, yeah, you begin to see this anxiety and this depression emerge. And then as we intervene, you know, yeah, we have a medicine we could use. Yeah, we have psychotherapy we could use, but ultimately it's only going to go so far. Yeah, exactly. You can't just uh, take mental health as an isolated individual thing. You need to see the society and the community surrounding an individual. And unless you have food and housing, it's like you don't need psychotherapy. Mm. Yeah, you gotta meet those basic needs. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 ridiculous. I, I mean, we it's gonna 
help people feel good if they say, well, we, at least we tried. We sent the doctor there and, and they prescribed medicine, but like it's not yeah. the response. It goes back to that purposefulness too. I think there's something very purposeful for having your own home. There's very something purposeful for, for knowing you have food and that your family has food, especially as a, you know, a husband or a wife or a caregiver, whatever that looks like. There's purpose in that. And I think when you, you can't even meet those basic resources, you've lost just that basic purpose as a human many times. You can't mm-hmm. even provide for your very close-knit tribe. One of my favorite examples in the Finnish strategy that we have implemented in Finland is, is a right for job for those who have a mental illness. And um, it, it's it's an international model of, of helping people find a job from, from the free market. And it seems to be helping them in recovery more than even medicine or psychotherapy. If you have a bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, uh, despite the pandemic, 45% of these people found a job. It's part, part-time or so, but it, it, we can also we also measure the response and and they do recover. It's it's like even symptom wise they they most most of them feel better when they have this regular rhythm. They have this meaning in life and 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 so on. And of course they get money from they get salary. Yeah. So so that's something we haven't done. We have protected people who have a an illness like they they oh you are you you have this uh, monthly fee for uh, like just you need to rest and you you don't have to work at all and now we recognize that's not working they don't like there's no it's not good for their well-being do you see where a lot of the, especially when you're referencing like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder which we we would consider those two big disorders in, in mental health mm-hmm. where medicine's really used a lot in those types of things do those people get into those jobs and do those other things and are able to, to decrease their need for treatment or decrease the severity of need for treatment? Or do they continue to engage in that treatment as they're doing the job and those things as well? Well, in the first um, months and years, it's essential to continue the treatment and it should be strong, strongly supported. Uh, so, so it's collaboration with the treatment, with the medication, uh, even cognitive training and so on, social skills training. And then you have this support at work. These people do have a contact who would go to the workplace and see how it is going and support them. But um, it's working well. And, and do you find that those people as well as they're working those jobs, they kind of find almost a purpose in that community. So now they're engaged with these other people that they're working with. And so now they're making friends, which we know is such a challenge especially for people with schizophrenia who really are isolated, those negative symptoms of that illness make it difficult to relate to other people. They're able to all relate and kind of find that purpose in that community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, yes. I mean, everybody can contribute to their society in their way. We just need to find what's the best way for them. Um, there's one company in Finland, they only recruit people who have autism and it's, mm. it's for IT. And they say, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have lots of talent mm-hmm. and, and then they just have a, people supporting them in social skills mm-hmm. where they are not the most brilliant mm-hmm. uh, by definition. So, so and, and um, it's, I think these kind of companies, we need more and more. Absolutely. I would agree with that. You know, I think that's something we see a lot is, you know, everybody has their own special constructs of their brain and, and these illness, many times these illnesses, or just a side effect of something really incredible happening in the brain. But it's unfortunate because we focus so much on the side effects of what's incredible rather than what makes them incredible. Like autism, for example, the ability mm-hmm. to solve certain problems and things in a, in a completely different manner, but they have issues in social structures and that kind of stuff. So if you support that and then create that ability to do it, like you're talking about now, these people find purpose. And now it's just this beautiful cycle really of people engaging in community and, and finding purpose in their life. Oh, and not only that, the society will benefit from that as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we, do, we have a serious lack of people working mm. in the future. Really? So do you feel like that's, that's a challenge for you all as well, not only in Finland, but in this whole, like, the Nordic area, people not working? 
Yeah, all, all, and it's not about people not working, but we, it's, uh, it's their structure of population. We have so many old people who don't work anymore, so that those young who are there, uh, we can't make it with that. It's, it's the pyramid has been this way. Like young people are, are a minority, and and we do have lots of old people, and they mm. live longer and longer, which is nice. But you need to people help them. So you know, one thing that I, I get from you know, this conversation is just a lot of the challenges that, you know, that we face in America and that we face in Western healthcare. You all face this as well, but you're doing different things than we do to treat it. And, and you're having really good success in a lot of ways. But, you know, the, the, the aging population, the, you know, the issues in, in certain structures are all there. Um, it's just finding other ways to manage it rather than just here's money or here's a check or, you know, just kind of go away. How can I engage you in the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is so interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for this knowledge. Like this is incredible. One thing that we always ask people is what is something you're doing right now for your own mental health that you find to be very helpful to you? Oh, it's cross country skiing. <laughs> cross country skiing. Okay. <laughs> and meeting friends. Yeah. Okay. So how, how far will you go on like a cross country ski like um like a run or I guess that's what we could talk, call a run, but a stint, if you will. How long will that last? Oh, um, so I used to do that a lot. Then it was twenty kilometers when I lived up and uh, up north. Yeah. But here in in southern Finland, I, I would say ten kilometers is is good for me. Okay, that is that is incredible cross country skiing. Oh, cool. Do you find yourself saunaing a lot? I, I, I mean, I've I've seen so many people do it. We've had some of the best sauna experiences here. Do do you lean into that as well? Yeah, yeah, but that's you don't have to mention that if you speak with a Finn. So that's just part of culture across the board. Yeah, sure. Every single if you have a one room um, condo in Finland, you you have a sauna there. <laughs> Do you think it, it, was it just initially to stay warm or has has Finn's always known hey this can be very helpful to my health well I don't know we you know in on the the area where I was born in it's it's really in the middle of nowhere so so the people were born in the sauna they died in the sauna they lived in the sauna like in the, the 19th century so it's it's essential for us the yeah, sauna. just part of the community part of the culture is always yeah, yeah that that's where you meet people that's that's where you make decisions it's yeah i can see that you know then there's a community based around that as well it's something that we noticed being in helsinki the the different sauna experiences we had you would see everyone in there together, then they would leave and then they'd be hanging out outside and maybe having a drink and talking and having a big time with their whole group rather than just, well, I'm showing up, I do the sauna and I leave by myself. That, yeah. that does seem to be very important. For people who are listening who may just not knowing where to go, what do you feel like is something really important that people can do for their mental health globally, no matter where they are? That's one, one core thing that you find to, to hold dear to connect with people I think that's a good motto coming from Finland yeah. I guess Nokia used to use that but yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a good one good. yeah connect with people I, I think that is so important that's something I've taken from my experiences here too uh thank you thank you so much thank you have a nice time in Finland <laughs>